Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Self-loathing writer who is <laughs> in a deep spiral trying to create something good is kind of my jam, um, and this fits that to a T. Uh, the fact that it's also got Nicolas Cage in it, someone I also love, and it's Charlie Kaufman who I love. Yeah, there's there's a lot of boxes ticked on this one. I appreciated it the longer I stayed with it mm. because it, you kind of all the pieces were clicking in place and it was just really satisfying that way I love everything about this movie <laughs> like I genuinely the, I mean it, I, I will give it exactly what I gave it in Letterboxd it's five I love this movie <laughs> Hey everyone and welcome to Flixwatcher Podcast today I'm joined by Paul Hi there Emma Hi Helen Hello and we're going super nuts with Charlie Kaufman in Adaptation. Thank you, as always, to the mighty people for the mighty, mighty tunes. And thanks to Ben from Rockwood Audio for his awesome editing skills. Please do remember to write a review and rate us on Apple Podcasts anywhere you can do where you listen to the podcast because it really does help us. And you can join in the conversation with us on Twitter at FlixWatcherPod and on Instagram at FlixWatcher. Hello film fans, thanks for listening today. Joining us remotely, we have Paul and Emma. If you could please say hello and tell the listeners a little bit more about who you are and what you do, please. Sure, hi, I'm I'm Emma. I'm part of the Yearbook Committee podcast. Um, I do other things as well. So I stream on Twitch and I write a lot of horror nonsense. Um, the Yearbook Committee podcast, a podcast all about teen movies, where every episode we pick three films and a theme. And we see if those films fit that theme. And most of the time it's us making Buffy references and being excited that Reese Witherspoon comes back all the time. Well, so she comes back, she's an election. I'm trying. Oh, we've had her a ton. <laughs> yeah, she's come back. I mean, a we few haven't. Times. It would be Le- great if is, she came on the podcast. Is, legal, but... is legally blonde to, is it just, it's just high school, isn't it? Yeah, we, we occasionally venture into college movies, but it's mostly, mostly high school. So we've had, we haven't done Cruel Intentions yet, but we've had... Uh, of course. Fear. That was oh, fun yeah. as well. Yeah, Fear, uh, SFW, yeah. Election. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, and there's more to come. Pleasantville. Yeah, Pleasantville. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's amazing how many people, kind of the same people crop up in, in the time and time. Like Joseph Gordon-Levitt, for example, he's, he's in a few of these. So are you allowed to repeat the same, the same film? Because I've, I've been listening to your show and I can't see any repeats in there, whether it would be... Like sim- there'll be clear ones we could use in the same category time and time again. 
Is that one of the rules you stipulate? We've never done a repeat, mostly because there are so many films in the list, I don't think we need to. Mm. Yeah. Do you, do you get like kind of like a, a series of Venn diagrams where you've got all of like the crossovers? Because surely there must be like films where you're like, mm, well, could we do it under this episode or that episode? Like, how does it get? Oh, like, we have a spreadsheet. How do you make the decisions? A spreadsheet. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Everyone has a little sort of theme or topic, and we've got three films lined up for each of them. But then we just got a section afterwards of like alternate choices yeah um and sometimes it's maybe just one and sometimes it's about five and if there's enough then we'll go you know what this is a two-par or a three-parter yeah or more oh yeah <laughs> we're generally quite um in sync so most of the time we can usually agree quite quickly yeah. like yeah. A, what film fits under what theme but we've had a occasional um it's not even a full argument it's usually we both just are sort of like ah, i don't know and then we end up with three episodes we'll give everyone yeah, an, extra. An, an example of a of a theme and and the films that came with that theme one of my favorites um is the meanathon so we did the mean friend so that was mean girls heathers and jawbreaker mm. and it's it was one of our first ones and it's still one of my favorites yeah that was that was a good long while ago because the first the first effective season we kind of each episodes attached itself to a particular kind of teen trope type character like the jock the mean friend the nerd all that kind of stuff the stoner um yeah exactly they were not good films days and confused i still love Day yeah days and confused a lot of people really really love yeah i totally get why but it's just not one i can grab like grab onto and i don't know why it frustrates me because i love Linklater and i love all the people in it but it's just the one that frustratingly i can never have any love for i found it a bit mm, all right yeah. saw it fine <laughs> <laughs> and how do you actually source the films because some of them are really quite obscure um, so there's Angelina Jolie one which sounded awesome and I was just like yeah Foxfire yeah Foxfire. oh it's so good Foxfire yeah. that was great Foxfire that's is a, one, of our, yeah. one of our ones that we just wish one day when Netflix would listen to us I legit still I still request that movie on Netflix like every month or so oh do you do yeah, there's a wee section you, of that you can. Of course, know this. Yeah, there's a wee <laughs> section. If you go to your settings on Netflix, you can record. It's like you can request like three TV series or movies, um, okay. and I I do a bunch of. It's never worked for me once, <laughs> but one day they'll listen. One day. Well, I'm surprised today. I found out that Morven Color has been uh, put on Netflix, um, which is a film that I've heard a gazillion people talk about. Uh, it's Lynn one Ramsey of my all-time faves. I've never seen it, and also so I want that and Ratcatcher to go on and. And I basically just want all the Lynn Ramsey films on there. I'd love to do it like a weekend sure. of her films. Um, and they're only they're all like ninety minutes long as well, so you can hmm. have a lovely time <laughs> in a very short time. Yeah. Well, we're here talking about a film that's a bit longer. It's adaptation, uh, which is your choice, Paul. Can you yeah. tell us first of all why you chose it, and then I'll get a stopwatch out and put a timer <laughs> on for sixty seconds and tell us the synopsis. Okay, so I picked this film because this is exactly the type of film that speaks to me in several different types of ways. Like everyone tends to have a type of story that they just gravitate towards almost regardless of genre. Self-loathing writer who is <laughs> in a deep spiral trying to create something good is kind of my jam. Um, and this fits that to a T. Uh, the fact that it's also got Nicolas Cage in it, someone I also love, and it's Charlie Kaufman who I love. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of boxes ticked on this one. And the synopsis starting now. So Charlie Kaufman is a Hollywood screenwriter with one good movie under his belt and is now struggling to create a second one. The fact that he is an incredibly talented writer, but who is also incredibly self-loathing and anxious about his own talent and the 
expectation of producing another great hit uh, leads him to attempt to adapt a, a book called the, the Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean, which he struggles to adapt because it has no structure, it just has characters. And he struggles with it so much that he eventually writes a script in which he, the movie is about him adapting the book and struggling with that. So it's a weird Ouroboros tale of him attempting to create something good, failing to do so, but then writing a movie about how he's trying to create something good, but failing to do so. And in doing so, actually creates a movie that's worthwhile. Excellent. 59 seconds is the timer there for people who don't believe we have a timer. Did you practice this? No. It was very good. <laughs> very good. <laughs> very slick. So I mean, where, do, where do you want to start on it? Because it's, I, 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 I was going to say, let's start with the meta aspects, but it's, it's super meta in many different ways. But the, mm -hmm. the film that he, successful film that he's written before is, is being John Markovich. Yeah. And I've seen this once before. I can't remember any of the ties to being up to Markovich. I think I've maybe just watched it when I was super tired. Um, mm. But I knew it was by the same kind of team that made being John Markovich. But I loved all the references that in, they're in there. In, you know, seeing um, John Cusack just for a glimpse and Catherine Keener in, in, in shots and going back to this, to the like nine and three quarters height, the, the super short uh, floor and going, you know, going behind the scenes and stuff like that. Seeing John Markovich. All those kind of bits. So that really engaged me this this time around. Where, I mean, where, do, where are you guys with John Markovich, which is a film we've covered here before, actually? I mean, I, I'm trying to remember when I actually saw Being John Markovich. I, I, neither, neither of the films are ones that I saw in the cinema. Um, mm. They're only ones I came to uh, on DVD later. Um, but Being John Malkovich, being that kind of film, really appealed to me. Um, so it was actually, it's, it's a weird... On a certain perspective, it's a sort of conceptual sequel to Being John Malkovich, just on the level it follows this one completely insignificant character from Being John Malkovich, the guy who wrote it. Mm. Um, and so you have all of these uh, little moments that return to trying to put him into the place of making a film. This is the world in which he lives and creates and you know effectively makes his living. But no one respects him. No one really pays attention to him. And that just makes him more and more anxious about it. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a neat, as I say, nice little conceptual sequel to that first one. Oi, South Emma, you're a fan of Benjo Malkovich? Yeah, I mean, it's one of these films I feel like I watched once and went, yes, that was good, and <laughs> didn't go back to it fully as much as called it. Um, so this was actually the first time I'd watched the adaptation. And oh, okay. um, it, it's the most Paul film that ever Pauled. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> No, I did really enjoy it. Like, um, I I did love all the kind of, and I know we're going to we'll chat more about the meta stuff, but um, well, let's go. I let's think, go to where you want to go now with the meta meta angles, the different aspects of it. Sure. I mean, I feel like it's a film where I appreciated it the longer I stayed with it mm. because it, you kind of all the pieces were clicking into place, and it was just really satisfying that way. But I will let Paul rant about all the meta because I think that's. Probably what he's bursting to talk about. Well, why wouldn't you want to talk about the meta? And how could you avoid the meta? <laughs> um, oh, again, good lord, where do you actually start in like actually trying to put together the? I mean, it, the weird thing about adaptation is it's effectively a true story. Like it really, like you know, Charlie Kaufman did read the Orchid Thief, okay, and did genuinely try to adapt it because he loved it so much. So hold on, the Orchid Thief is a real book. I, I, it's a re I've, done, yeah. I've done zero research on this. Okay, yeah. it's yep. uh, a real book. It's a real book. Susan Orleans uh, is a real is a real writer, um, and he just wanted to make 
a, a movie of this book, but he wanted to keep the things that he found really, really special about the book, things about uh, the, the fascination with the type of character, like John LaRoche, the one that Chris Cooper plays, and why a writer would fall in with someone like that and be fascinated by him, but also just be fascinated by not just him, but the things he cares passionately about, about orchids, about nature, about fish. Those are the things he wanted to keep about it, but the fact that the like there, there is no story to the book um he really really struggled with it and in in an act of just absolute lunacy mm. wrote himself into it i mean that's another aspect of the film that we ultimately get is the fact that he as he's writing this film about him trying to write the film he constantly struggles with the decision to stay true to the book or make it a more quote-unquote hollywood film by putting in an artificial storyline like a, a thriller plot or a romance plot um, so he creates a fictitious twin brother, Donald, who effectively becomes kind of an anti-sounding board. If, if Donald's saying that's how it should run, that's exactly what we should not do. But then the whole film becomes a process of trying to wonder if that's actually the right way to do it and eventually giving into it and trying to create the film he really wanted to whilst creating the film that people want to see. It's kind of a head spinner. I love it. I love it. I was going to say, there's also the interesting theory that the screenplay that Donald is also writing about the serial killer, who mm. the serial killer is also the cop and the victim yeah. and the killer, that the it's also that Kaufman and Susan, the writer of The Awkward Thief, and Donald are also all the same person. So yeah. there's, there's like one kind of like wormhole opens up another wormhole. Mm. And you could just go on forever and ever and ever trying to link it all back, but then potentially none of it links back at all. It's just whether you want to kind of look at it in that way as well. Yeah, I like I like the theory because it does have this. It does ha try to have this connective tissue of like this is just the through line of all writers. It's almost like Charlie Kaufman being so uh, wrapped up in his own anxiety of the process, kind of just assumes that all other writers are exactly like that. But also they're not because they're successful and doing good work and just living their lives. And how can they not be balls of anxiety just like him? So you have this attempt of him to try and make Susan Orlean, his character, more like him. But then you get moments where he goes and actually sees her and meets her. And she's nothing like that. She is just someone who wrote an article, then wrote a book and did a job and moved on. It's but, she didn't, but she didn't move on though, did she? Well, as, as, as written in, this, in the film of the screenplay, the thing which may, have, may, have not, may or may not have happened. Exactly, yeah. Um. <laughs> See, I think if you were the real Susan Orlean, you'd have told them to a wee and getty. You'd have, I'd have been livid. <laughs> She's done this. And she'd be like, no, this is not my book. But at the same time, I think that's what's fun about it. Yeah, I mean... She's, it, it's not the book. It's probably... I've not read it, but it seems like it's absolutely not the book. I love I love this concept. I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of floored that this is... The book exists which adds not just like it adds like orders of magnitudes of meta to already what's going on here. I'm not going to read the book. I'm just going to read the synopsis when we finish. I'm going to tell you that now. Maybe go on Amazon or well, whatever and get some, get some reviews. Apparently uh, it's not going to make a very good film screenplay because, you know, there's no narrative to it or anything. I'm not so. looking to write a screenplay. I just want to just, just <laughs> see kind of key points of it. That's, that's kind of blown my mind. So there's, 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 there's several, there's quite a lot of real characters in it who yeah. exist and there's real characters who are playing themselves in it. So obviously um, John Malkovich is in there and John Cusack and various other people. Catherine Keener. And then 
And then there's also people playing real characters. So obviously Meryl Streep is playing Susan and Chris Cooper is playing LaRoche. Mm. So there's also that as well. But then in a slightly weird twist, one of the main characters, Donald, doesn't exist. So you've got this kind of weird... So even people down to like the um, the exec who keeps saying he, he'd bang that, he'd, he said something like that, doesn't he? That That is based on a, a real exec, but that's not him playing him. He's he's based on the character. Mm-hmm. So all the way th- running through it are real people playing either <laughs> a version of themselves or themselves or real people portrayed by actors or someone who doesn't exist but is played in a way that could be yeah. real. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but I'm sure it makes sense. Um, I'm like, yeah, it makes exact. And I think that's <laughs> that's what's enjoyable about it, is that there's kind of enough suspension of disbelief to make you go, wait, d- does, he, does he have a brother? <laughs> there's, there's a brilliant line in it quite early on, um, Tilda Swinton's character, where she says, I guess I'm not entirely sure what that means. And I kind of, <laughs> when I watched this again, I was like, this is the film. This is, <laughs> I I am that in there. And well, then I mean, there's, there's even more weird things. So like the dinner party guests, like Curtis Hansen and David O. Russell are both directors and they're both there as guests. And then obviously Spike Jones made a film with David O. Russell. So there's, there's even more like real people, but them playing fictional characters. Hmm. So there's all this kind of like weird world of film and literature and reality all blended. I think this must have been an absolute, I don't know how, well, they've obviously pitched it and got it on the, off the back of being John Markovich, but it takes it takes a certain amount of chutzpah to put this film together and make it successful, make it, I'm not sure if it's coherent, but make it thought-provoking. Um, but I think a lot of it ties together with, because of because of Nicolas Cage, and he is a very minor actor. Not necessarily because people like him or don't like him. In some films he's atrocious, in some films he's, Absolutely stellar. And I think this is one of his most in, endearing films. Him and Donald, but I think this is one of the best twin performances I've seen in films. Yeah. I can't think of one of one better, both in kind of how seamless it is, but just how the the interaction goes between them and how straight away you can tell, oh, that's Donald and that's and that's um and that's child and that's Charles. Um and this is all down to Nicholas Cage, and you just kind of think, dude, can you just sort yourself out (laughs) (laughs) where where was this all of these years yeah um yeah it's a really great dual performance what i really enjoy is that it doesn't actually lead itself to the what would be really really easy to do of make charlie kaufman the character like you know obsessive sad sack writer and make donald kaufman really slick really cool just like everyone's friend and that you can totally see that they are very similar that they would be twins Mm. Um, there's a there's kind of a very fine line that separates them, but there is still that really good distinction between what they are like. You can easily tell them apart, even though they are so close as to be almost the same person at times. <laughs> it's great. It's not it's not uh, Donald's um, overconfidence. It's his lack of saying no. I can't do that. Yes, yeah, he just, has just... no self consciousness at all. Yeah. It's not. It, apparently, it was originally going to be Tom Hanks, so it could have been an entirely different <laughs> kind of film altogether. And if or you're looking both, for like playing both characters, yeah, yeah. So he was originally cast. Um, if you're looking for like another great twin performance, Jeremy Irons in Oh yeah, um, Dead yeah. Ringers um, mm-hmm. is is pretty pretty good up there. 
Um, it's kind of interesting, like Nicolas Cage apparently decided to just kind of only sort of respond to what Spike Jones said and completely didn't do anything that he'd ever done ever before. Mm. And obviously, you know, <laughs> gave this performance <laughs> and was nominated for an Oscar and people who claim they don't like Nicolas Cage films, you say, we even the adaptation? And they'll go, oh, actually, yeah, I kind of like that. It's, it's so well, interesting, is it? Because you're like, well, if you can do that once, then why why wouldn't you kind of want to go back there or kind of revisit that in in a different like, way, but a more interesting way? I feel like that's almost a trick, though. <laughs> like, he can't be that good all the time. He has to trick you into wanting to go to see the film to go, mm. maybe it'll be good this time. Yeah, yeah. It's and like then every now and then you get a Mandy. Well, he... <laughs> He did have a pretty good run because, like, late 90s, Nick Cage was, like, bringing out the dead, leaving Las Vegas, very different to what a lot of people will probably know him for now. He mm. was, you know, making quite serious films and working with Scorsese and writing as well. I think he wrote, didn't he write as well, Leaving Las Vegas? So he was doing, like, some pretty heavy stuff. And then post this is when he mm. kind of went mega Nick Cave, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, what, what are your what are your favourites loving favourite films you love him favourite films you love to hate him? I genuinely don't know if I have any that I have actually disliked. I mean, that's amongst the reasons I I love Nick Cage is because the man is fearless, like in the best possible way. He will make a choice and he will stick with that choice, even if it's the wrong choice. Mm. He will stick with it, and so it's always interesting. The film might be not great. The film is often not worthy of him and the heights he's trying to. To bring it to um but yeah it's so everyone so you get you'll get stuff that is like ridiculously over the top like mandy or the sort of more insane moments of ghost rider but then you'll have things like joe or adaptation which are way quieter and more subtle and you do go you're you're like there's genuine range in that man he's not always <laughs> at at full volume and it's the times where he like the times where he's at full volume can kind they of give him the almost the credibility to go quiet and then you go oh 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 good lord um i actually as much as i know not a big fan of it um, i think he was great in kick-ass i was gonna say kick-ass because he just is exactly what paul just said there i feel like when he when he when he goes for something he really goes for it and i still think that even if bits of kick-ass have slipped out my brain since the moment where he's putting on the eye makeup just kind of lingers it's great, and he's just so Adam West the whole time. It's great. <laughs> Helen, where are you on the cage? It kind of very, very up and down. I'd probably say Wild at Heart is up there, Con Air, Face Off, and then yeah, that, that's 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 probably like my my kind of peak limits. I'm trying <laughs> to think of some other ones. Um, I think my favourite was probably Raising Arizona. Um, <laughs> in the cave. In the cave. You said cave before, Helen. Um, who's also a great, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get the two mixed up. You'll have a very strange experience. But he should do more comedy. I mean, he sort of does comedy. He doesn't does he do comedy? He sometimes on. Oh, Raising maybe, Arizona, he, also, isn't it? Yeah. So, but that was I mean, like eighteen ages 18. ago. <laughs> yeah. I guess some would argue that the Wicker Man is probably a comedy, even though it was not <laughs> I don't intended. Think it, it tried to be. So. Yeah. Um, also, Paul, what was the one we did do that we both loved to bits in the podcast and I can't remember the name of? Oh, yeah. Valley Girl. Valley Girl, yeah. He is, Valley is he in Valley Girl? Yeah, Valley, yeah. He's, the, he's the main guy in Valley Girl. He's, like, Valley Girl is so good and he's great. It's, like, very early doors for him. Um, 
And yeah, it's an absolute delight from There's, the like, beginning the to end. It's like the cutest dating montage in a film ever. Yeah. And it's got Nick Cage. You never would have thought. It's great. Yeah, for sure. Dig out Valley Girl. If you haven't seen Valley Girl, give that a shot. Because often people, well, people talk about him in, in Ridgemont Highs. Is, was, that his, was that his first? Yeah, it's it's amongst the first. I'm trying to remember. Because there's that. There's, I think Rumblefish was the same year as Valley Girl. Yeah, he had, a, I think, The Outsiders as well. He had this sort of little glut around about that, sort of the very early 80s, where he was all doing a variation on the same type of character to a degree. Yeah. Um, but then he kind of grew from there because other directors would start to know that he did genuinely have range. He could do Raising Arizona and he could do Rumble Fish and he could do Bring Out the Dead and he could do, you know, Peggy Sue Got Married. He's, you know, he's got a lot, got a lot of strings on his bow. Yeah. yeah. Moonstruck's one of my favourite performances, which had, I think, oh, comes man. out in left field. He's made a well. lot of films, hasn't yeah. he? I love that Moonstruck is the type of film Nicolas Cage would look at and go, I'm going to channel silent movie acting through this <laughs> and it's going to be glorious. Again, Some of the line choices I just think are splendid. Yeah. <laughs> um, should we talk about some of the other cast guys? Yeah, sure. Paul, anyway, who else do you want to pick up from? Um, well, I mean... I've, I've, an easy one to go to is like Chris Cooper because he's like the a very beloved sort of character actor has mm. been for a long time, um, been in many many things, but this was the one that I mean it, it was the one that got him his nomination and Oscar, and it's a really good shout for for him, um, and again demonstrating a kind of duality, but on a far more subtle level than Nicolas Cage in it because obviously Nicolas Cage is playing two different characters so he has a very open availability to to play two different types uh Cooper has to play a very uh discordant character mm. as a single person because he is someone who when again when you look at him you you know in the nicest possible way you think hillbilly because that's kind of what he's set up to look like uh, someone who trudges through swamps he's missing all his front teeth he wears a cap and he talks with a you know some sort of vaguely southern accent but he is an incredibly intelligent very very erudite person uh, who seeks trouble wherever he can find it and wherever guys he can find it and a man of great passion for orchids and for fish but he's also kind of typified by his ability to at the drop of a hat and for no real discernible reason just cut them out of his life completely he will be all about fish and then he just does not care about fish at mm. all in his words, fuck fish. And that just comes from nowhere. Um, and again, that comes that becomes part of why Susan Orlean finds him fascinating and why Charlie Kaufman finds him fascinating as someone who can be so passionate and so driven by a single purpose to then just drop it. Yeah, that's that's incredible stuff. And they and with him being so intelligent and he wants to flaunt his intelligence and show people how smart he is. But then if he meets someone who gets his references and knows exactly what he's talking about without him having to explain it, he becomes quite sort of churlish and a bit, well, I can't be talking about this all the time. Yeah, he's just, yeah, it's a really, really great character and Cooper does really good with him. Have you guys listened to the podcast S-Town? Uh, I, I think I gave it a shot a long time ago, but I just wasn't really in the right headspace to, <laughs> to deal with it. Because, I mean, that's when watching this again, since what, listening to S-Town, I was like, oh shit, you're the main protagonist in in the show in the, in, yeah. in the podcast and i was also thinking if this was done now this would be a podcast following this one guy and oh, and yeah. his his insane tricks so it, it do jenny just listen to the first episode of s town and 
you'll get the you'll definitely see the, the lineages and, and connections between him and character um John B. Macklemore, who's again singular in his, his intelligence, saying he's the smartest person that he knows, also causing havoc around himself. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, just listen to the first episode and you'll see you'll see the parallels there uh, greatly. Um yeah, Chris Cooper for me is one of those actors where I I didn't really recognise him. He's a great character actor, but mm. didn't really re- place him on the map until the Muppets, uh, the John Siegel <laughs> Muppets. And then it's, every time I see him in the film, he's like American Beauty and this. And I'm like, yeah, it's, I know this guy. I've known him for ages, of course. He's a, he's a great actor. Maniacal laugh guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Emma, any of the cast that you want to pick out? Um, I feel like, I mean, I feel like the obvious one to jump to after that is probably Meryl Streep. I think she's one of these people, she's literally a chameleon. Like, I don't think she is a person. I think she's actually a chameleon. She just kind of becomes whatever she needs to be. And I think she's quite great in this as well, because there's something quite cold about her at points all the way through it. Like, she's kind of just in to do her job, but it's those little glimmers of maybe he says something that really resonates with her or that she finds, like, something more in that maybe he didn't mean like maybe if he's made some kind of throwaway comment about orchids and in her head this is the most profound metaphor she's ever heard in her life but it's probably just that need to find something for her to care about Um, but I think think she was great in this the point where though one of the like uh, garden centre workers tells her her hair's really great I instantly was like this man's on a lot of drugs (laughs) that's <laughs> definitely on a lot of drugs she just she has not conditioned to so many split ends that hair like oh, it's yes. terrible like yeah, i'm just like, thinking yeah. is this for the film or does she just need like a good haircut and some conditioning but <laughs> you're absolutely right like she does more with kind of some of her facial expressions around her eyes than some people do in their entire mm-hmm. career for acting she's quite magical on screen I think for me, seeing Judy Greer in anything is always great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She just kind of brings something different. And I've completely forgotten that Tilda Swinton was in this. I love that yeah. they were the objects of his affections, um, so close but so but so far away. And I felt gutted that he's, oh, there's, a, there's an orchid exhibition. And she's like, oh, no. Oh, no, no. no. You're creepy no. and weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's one of these things where until she turned around and was like, no, I was like, no, no fodder. Like, <laughs> I, was, I was quite pleased when she decided yeah. he was a creep because he was suitably being a creep. Yeah, <laughs> it's great that he has that kind of weird little, that sort of moment of realisation within it. Like he plays out this whole fantasy of them going to the orchid place and yeah. then just starting this, you know, rather cute but sort of loving relationship. And then as soon as he, it's not even like he attempts to instigate that, but he just asks her to maybe go to the show instantly realizes what he's done she goes and speaks to a manager and he just sinks into himself because he remains a self-loathing individual and it's it's contrasting with because he's got it's what at the start of the film at least a, a fairly stable relationship with someone who seems to be super into him yet he can't yeah. make that he can't get out of himself to make that go to the next level by it would seem just giving her a kiss yeah. um there's lots of interesting nuances and in, and in how how Charlie Kaufman's played out. Has anyone actually had an interview with, seen an interview with him or heard what he's like in, in real life or how much of an exaggeration or realist, real is this? I've seen like the occasional interview with him. He's not necessarily someone who does it a whole lot. Mm. Um, I feel like the most honest version of him is like, he, he wrote a book recently called Ant Kind, 
that is that's him because that's about that is very sort of pointedly about the film industry and like film critics and the 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 weird extended world that he lives in. He's not as schlubby as uh, Nick Cage uh, yeah. presents him as, but again, we're all everything in the film is always being filtered through his perception. So his self perception is someone who is so balding and fat and just so unattractive to everyone and can't do anything. Yeah, it's he's not that, but he thinks he's that, so he may as well be in a weird yeah. way. Uh, is there anything else we want to talk about, guys, before we head to the scores? Do you know who I did love in this film and forgot he was in it till two minutes ago? Good old Brian Cox. Yes. yes. Totally oh. forgot he was in it, even though at the time when I was watching it, I was like, oh, Brian Cox. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking Succession. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Another person playing a real life character. Yeah. Oh yes. Um yeah. Robert, Robert McKee. McKee. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's a it's a nice little uh nod towards this whole kind of notion of like how you if the film is about adapting a book and he's got this constant idea of like how you do it and the way to do it is to allow it to evolve properly and let it find its own way. And it's a very long and laborious process, but at the end of it you'll have something good. But Robert McKee represents a more closed system that will make you write something quicker mm. and more structured. But you might end up writing something that's more uh, just pedestrian as a result because it, you're because you're willing to sacrifice that individual thing from what you're adapting. But Brian Cox is a lot of fun. He's just an absolute blitzkrieg. He's great. Let's head to the sports, guys. I'm Sam Clements, host of the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival, another podcast in the Stripped Media family, a podcast that celebrates movies under 90 minutes long. Each episode, I'm joined by a special guest who selects a movie to join our prestigious lineup. Past guests have come from the worlds of film, television, music, food, comedy, and podcasting. Search for us now on the app you're currently listening to this podcast or join us at 90minfilmfest.com. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So we also have a spreadsheet, a spreadsheet for our scoring. Um, with our scores, they are all out of five. You may have decimal places if you wish. And the first category is recommendability. So please, Paul, out of five, how much would you recommend this film? To someone like me, <laughs> five. To a normal person, three and a half, four. Because it's really good. It's very enjoyable. But it's, if you're not like me, it's often just annoyingly confusing <laughs> so what are we going to go for uh i'll probably say three and a half i can see this frustrating a normal person but five if you're me if you're me it's five <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna like take no your the poll scores and then <laughs> do some do some, some yeah. an average of the scores do some science <laughs> uh emma i can appreciate everything that was good about it 
<laughs> but I think I'd say maybe a three. I feel like it's a film you should watch. It probably feels like like having your vegetables with dinner. But I wanted a bit more ice cream. Helen. I absolutely love what, that. Broccoli and ice cream, is that what you want to say? Well. If you eat your broccoli, you get your ice cream. Okay, sure. Just checking. I work with children. That's where this comes from. Sorry, Helen. God, it's such a weird one. There's so much that I've like absolutely really 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 love and find really fascinating and then there's a bit where it switches and it becomes kind of like the thriller part of the film Mm. and I'm I'm less engaged in it and I kind of want it to go back to like the weird brain melting thing it is it's kind of a weird one isn't it because it could go either way depending (laughs) on how you recommend it to people because you go well do you like Nicolas Cage and they say yes and you go, well, that doesn't help. You should probably watch it. <laughs> but they might like this kind of Nicolas Cage. I know, but what I'm saying, well, for me, that doesn't help Help me recommend it more or less. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> that's Nicolas Cage. Sorry, carry on. It's your score. It is. I will say that I think I like Calvin best when he's not directing himself. I think he needs a separate director rather than when he's in charge. And I think. Mm. The the two that he did with Spike Jones and then Michael Gondry with um, Eternal Sunshine are like top tier. And then I, I kind of go a little bit downhill. I think it's a little bit less, even though like being John Malkovich is completely absurd, it's a little bit easier to get. Once you kind of understand or get that there's a portal to go into, then you're like, mm. okay, I'm kind of in there. Whereas this is a little bit trickier. But I do think it's kind of interesting. So... I'm going to give it a four, a solid four. Yeah, I'm going to give it a four. I think there'll be lots of caveats because there are there are <laughs> lots to take away, and I think if you if you stick with it, then you'll you may not get it, but you'll be like, oh, okay, I see, interesting. And I think for a lot of people, the, the thriller bit at the end will be a bit of a payoff because it then becomes a bit more normal in a way. Repeat viewing score, Paul. Um, I actually think this is like a really solid one for repeat viewings because precisely because more of the the texture and the layers and the the weird circular references reveal themselves more to you the more you watch mm. it um so if you are inclined to rewatch again i can totally see people watching this and going never again i've lost so much <laughs> of my life already but um if you like it you'll absolutely get more uh, rewatching this so yeah four four and a half actually this is a this is a really solid one to rewatch. emma I'm going to be fair and say a four. I do. I do totally think it's one of these films that the more you watch it, the more you get out of it. And I actually really love a film that does that. So a film where I where know where the PCs are going, I really enjoy. Like The Prestige is one of my favourite films ever. Mm. Um, so I'd probably give it a four. So I've been faced with the possibility of rewatching it, but for some reason I've never gone. I must rewatch it. And I did really, really enjoy revisiting like the earlier bits and it was kind of fun and interesting and made my brain feel strange but I don't know how often I'm going to go back to it so maybe a three yeah I don't think I'm gonna it's one of those things I think like everyone said it it's, it bears rewatching. um you, you get more payout from it from from a rewatch but I can't think I'll be that bothered to watch it often this is my second time round and I remembered nothing from the first time um so I don't know if that leads into my engagement score uh, so I'm going to go for 2.8 here. Small screen score. Paul. Um, I 
I mean, I've never actually seen it on anything other than a small screen. I discovered mm. it on DVD. Uh, kind of only ever watched it on DVD or Netflix or anything, so I never saw it in the cinema. Um, so, and I don't think it really loses anything for having only been on a small screen for me. There's, I don't think there's anything that requires the massive scale of a screen to really fully engage with the things it's talking about or that it's trying to do. Um, if anything, the... Uh, the close quarters of your own kind of environment kind of are more closely to ape his perspective of just being so self-absorbed. Um, so yeah, I actually think this is a totally, this is a really solid one to watch on a, on a small screen. So four. Yeah. Four. Emma. I don't know why I still miss cinemas. So I feel like I would sit through like the remake of the Wicker Man <laughs> right now on a big screen. So um, I think purely for all the kind of jungle sequences and stuff. I want that on a big screen. I watched it on my computer, obviously, because um, I can't go anywhere right now. So I, I, I'd get three and a half. I'd, I'd preferred, to, preferred to have seen it, but it didn't do me great injustice. Helen. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm with Paul on this one. I've seen it at the cinema and I'm trying to think how I watched it since. I can't remember. So I've got one big screen and one small screen and I I kind of enjoyed it on the on the small screen. I think there is something about that because there's the voiceover that you're in his head so much that sort of watching it at home it feels like you're even more inside his head because you're kind of like looking into like a smaller screen and you're 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 mm. almost inside his head type thing. So being I'm, Charlie I'm, Kaufman. Yeah. <laughs> Like you're, you're kind of like privy to his inside thoughts and you're kind of like sitting in your home staring into the inside of his mind and you're like absorbing his projections everywhere because you're just, it's him and you in this small screen. Um, so yeah, I'm going to give it a five. Nice. Yeah, I think it's a five. If I'd seen it in cinema, I don't think it would have got the most out of it from seeing it in cinema because I don't think, I think it kind of needs that you sitting home, that glued to the TV kind of scenario. So five for a small screen score for me. Engagement score at Paul. I love everything about this movie. <laughs> like, I genuinely, the, I mean, it, I, I will give it exactly what I gave on Letterboxd. It's five. I love this movie. <laughs> uh, Emma? It's a three. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but it's fine. Did, what, what points did it lose you? Um, if I'm, no, this is going to sound really bad. The beginning. <laughs> I, I don't mean that it lost me altogether. It did bring me back. But um, I feel like at the beginning, I was just a bit like, oh. whereas once car chases and alligators came into it, I was like, <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, no, no, I get, I can appreciate what's good about it, but it was fine. Helen. We kind of got like, it is that extreme of a film, I think. When it first came on, there was all the things about the plants and the things. I was like, what's going on and all this? And then when... You kind of get to that point in the movie where he decides that he's going to start it with that and your brain's like going, ah, ah. I'm like, that's a five engagement. <laughs> but then then when we get to the, you know, hiding out in the swamp, I was a bit like, oh, yeah, I remember now. I remember he gets, mm -hmm. like, shot and stuff. I kind of remembered where this was going and I kind of did, like, turning off the lights, getting ready to exit the room, sort of like just wait for just keeping an eye on the <laughs> the ticking it down so how does that come out 4.3 i'm gonna go for five here um because when you're in it 
you have to be paying attention. And I think I'd rather just stop the film and say, okay, not right now, uh, which is probably why my repeat viewing score is lower. But I think once you once you start once you press play, you know, I'm ready to go. A few cups of coffee, uh, all the caffeine in the world, and paying attention. So five for engagement score, which gives us an overall score of three point nine seven five. Higher than I thought it was going to be. Higher than I thought it was going to be. Um, let's head to Twitter. So everyone who listens to this podcast, do follow us on Twitter. We are at Flixwatcher Podcast. Uh, follow us there because you know because it's fun, and also because. Uh, before every recording, we put out a little tweet such as this. We're reviewing Adaptation with Gil of Gotham and Paul Sinopal from the Yearbook Podcast. Have you seen this? Tell us your thoughts and your score out of five stars for an on-air shout-out on Flixwatcher. And we had one feedbacks. Uh, Paul, have you got your switch in front of you? Uh, this movie is pretty good. I have not watched it in a while, but I would give it three and a half. I remember watching in theatres. And that comes from <laughs> Flix X Raid. Thank you, Flix X Raid. Pippi. Can't remember it, but they still gave it a 3.5. That's pretty good. Thank you for taking part. Paul and Emma, can you tell everyone who's listening where we can find you online and say goodbye? Sure. Um, You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and I say Facebook, but we're only there sometimes, at Yearbook Podcast. If you want to drop us an email, it's yearbookpodcast at gmail.com. And individually, I'm at Paul Cinephile, and you're at Girl of Gotham. At Girl of Gotham. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Enjoyed this episode of Flixwatcher Podcast? Why not leave us a five-star review on iTunes? You can also follow us at FlixwatcherPod on Twitter and we're at Flixwatcher on Instagram. Thanks as always to the mighty people for their mighty, mighty tunes and Ben from Rockwood Audio for his awesome editing skills. If you're looking to get your podcast edited as sweet as this, get in touch with Ben and that's Rockwood, R-O-K-K Wood Audio. Tell them Flixwatcher sent you. just heard a stripped media production.